everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm going to be talking to you guys about Stevie Ray Vaughan, one of the coolest guitar players that has probably ever lived and probably ever will live. You know, I'm not going to lie. Today's episode was a toss-up between Eric Clapton or Stevie Ray Vaughan, and it just so happens that the death anniversary of Stevie Ray Vaughan is coming up in a couple of days. And so I figured, you know what? This is serendipitous. It has to be that I talk about Stevie Ray Vaughan today. I'm going to dive right in and tell you guys some of the really fascinating things about his life and his career that you guys probably never knew about, because believe me, I never knew some of the things about him at all. Mr. Stevie Ray Vaughan was born October 3rd, 1954 in Dallas, Texas. He had an older brother named Jimmy, and Jimmy would play kind of an integral role in Stevie's life. His father was an asbestos worker, which called for the family to move around all over Texas and beyond. Basically, wherever his father was called to work, the family would uproot their life and move to that place, whether it be for a few weeks, a few months, it was extremely sporadic to the point where, as a child, Stevie lived in more than 30 different towns. So that's a lot. I mean, the problem with that is you go to school in one place, you're uprooted a couple of weeks later or a couple months later, and then you go to a new place, right? And so as a child in your formative years, that obviously shaped how Stevie was. So Stevie was a lot more introverted. His brother, on the other hand, I think took up a lot more of their father's traits. Now, their father was a bit loud, their father was a bit boisterous, and he was an avid drinker, and he had a big temper, okay, especially when he would drink. And Jimmy and Stevie were extremely prone to alcoholic tendencies as an adult. I think we all know this. So that's kind of the juxtaposition between the two brothers there. And just like a little bit of backstory about the chaotic life that Stevie grew up in. I mean, can you imagine? As a child, you can't really make a lot of friends, and so you become really shy and introverted. Um, so the family would try to settle in a house in Dallas. You know, they really, really tried to make Dallas their homestead. You know, unfortunately, with the chaoticness of their family dynamic, and especially because they would move around so often, but also their father was extremely temperamental and angry, um, especially when he would drink and he drank a lot. It just became extremely chaotic in the family dynamic, and so Stevie would again turn to himself. You know, so he became a very sweet, shy, and insecure child, I think, as most kids who are born into this kind of family are. However, there were some decent days as well. He took note that his parents loved to dance to Western swing music to try and relax after a long and stressful day. So there's just that interesting juxtaposition between, like, you have his father who is so angry and violent and rageful, and then you have the other side where he dances with his mother to swing music. This would be Stevie and Jimmy's first encounter with music, this Western kind of swing. And obviously, they live in Dallas, Texas, and Texas is a massive country music epicenter, along with all the other southern states. But Texas is where there's a lot of blues. This is where Stevie would really grow to hone his musical ambitions was with his blues idols. But he also liked certain bands like Jeff Beck. He liked Led Zeppelin. I mean, he liked all the classics that were out at this time as well. Uh, so when Jimmy was 12, a family friend gave him his first guitar. Stevie would get also his own guitar not long after this, and it was a plastic guitar with only three strings, but this was nothing for Mr. Stevie Ray Vaughan. 
So both brothers weren't interested in taking guitar lessons, right? They just did not want to do that. So they focused instead on simply just learning to play music by ear with the records that they had in their own personal collection. And that's kind of funny because I find a lot of musicians do the same. A lot of them don't really want to read sheet music or they don't know how to read sheet music or they feel like they don't want to waste their time in lessons because there's nothing for them there. So they teach themselves. And I think that's really self-sufficient, but also... It makes a lot of sense because how can you learn the things that they know how to play by going to lessons? You kind of can't. So, of course, Mr. Stevie Ray Vaughan, the aficionado of guitar playing, would just not go to lessons. It makes sense. So they learned to play like some of their favorite blues musicians like Albert King, B.B. King, Otis Rush, and Buddy Guy. But also, like I said, they loved Led Zeppelin and Jeff Beck and others like that. By age 15, Jimmy was the lead guitarist in his band called The Chessmen, and they were a cover band that played all over Texas. He soon became somewhat of a local teen idol due to his good looks and guitar playing. So Jimmy was already a lot more accomplished in the music scene than Stevie was at this time because Jimmy was a couple of years older than Stevie. It's funny because Stevie kind of took up after his brother. I mean, the two of them were to become guitar legends in their own respective careers, um, which is fascinating because I never knew that. But, you know, Jimmy was already in Texas becoming somewhat of a local legend. It's just interesting. I mean, he kind of had like a rough, ragged James Dean kind of look about him. And so all the ladies would swoon all over him. Uh, So and he was an excellent guitar player as well. I'm not going to lie. He actually is really good. But so while Jimmy was in this band, Stevie was back at home, still practicing his guitar playing, eventually kind of working his way up to the level that Jimmy was. And I think in their brotherly relationship throughout their lifetimes, there would be, I think, this kind of competitive edge to them, which isn't a bad thing. I think that helps Stevie kind of push the boundaries a bit more to thinking like, how can I be bigger and better at what I do? So the singer for Jimmy's band, his name is Doyle Bramhall, and Doyle one day noticed that Stevie had a natural talent for guitar playing. One day he was over at Stevie and Jimmy's house, and out of the corner of his eye, he noticed that Stevie was in his room with like the door ajar playing the guitar, and he was so fascinated by this. And Stevie was only 12 years old at the time, mind you. He was like what is that, junior high school? That's like insane. He already became a guitar aficionado by age 12 because this is the time where he started to get in rock and roll bands himself. So now he was starting to climb up in the ranks and Jimmy was looking like, oh shit, my brother's catching up to me. So Stevie's first recording was for a garage band called A Cast of Thousands. And once Stevie entered into high school, he was now making his way up the ladder and doing paid gigs in various other bands. This is the thing, like he would jump from band to band to band because he wouldn't find himself settled in any of these. You know, there were some instances where I think they were okay or they weren't the best, but Stevie was like definitely leagues above the other players in the band. And that's just being real. You can't like outshine Stevie Ray Vaughan because Stevie Ray Vaughan will outshine everybody. So he just became restless in these bands that weren't doing a whole lot. It was good because he was making money. And as a high schooler, what more can you ask for? Um, But unfortunately, this started to take a toll on him physically and mentally. And it started to affect his grades at school, especially with his music theory class, which is like, So ironic that Stevie Ray Vaughan would flunk his music theory class. I think that's like so funny. 
But this is just like the toll that it was taking on him. He would go to these gigs after school and play for hours and stay up very, very late and make his money. And then he'd have to go to school. He would fall asleep. He just wasn't doing that great in school. It just became this repetitive kind of vicious circle that Stevie was falling into. And his parents took note of this and they were like, son, you're failing your classes. I don't think you should be doing this music career anymore. He, they actually said that to both Jimmy and Stevie. You as a teen, you're doing this music career thing. Your parents are like, no, you're not going to do this. And so what do they do? They start to rebel against their parents, and Jimmy was the first one to move out of the house in 1967 after a bad argument with their parents. Unfortunately, this left Stevie to fend for himself because he was still in school, and Jimmy could be a little bit more self-sufficient because he already had a bit more experience on his back with the world and things like that. So Stevie, being his shy, introverted self, was kind of finding this difficult without his brother around to kind of like help him with his parents. You know what I'm saying? Um, so Stevie, unfortunately, was like, well, what do I do now? So Stevie ends up taking a job as a local dishwasher at a market. And after one particularly bad day at work where he somehow accidentally fell into a bucket of grease, he said to himself, right, I'm quitting this fucking horrible job and I'm going to push myself to make it as a musician. He had the foresight. He had the mental capacity to see his life in his future and be like, right, that's my future. My future is not here working as a busboy, falling into a bucket of grease. Like, this is just not it for me. <laughs> so Stevie was steadfast at this. So Stevie would also, at this point, during Christmas break in 1967, quit high school, and he went on to pursue a music career, and he would never look back. So, you know, after a couple of years, you know, Stevie was trying to find himself. By 1971, Jimmy and Stevie were starting to become disenfranchised with the Dallas, Texas blue scene. They were just sick of it. So they decided to move to Austin. And from my understanding from researching, Austin at the time was very eclectic and it was very, very different. I've heard it said that Austin at this time was kind of like the San Francisco of Texas, wherein you could be free, you could play whatever you want, you could dress however you want, you could be however you want. No one would really care or bat an eyelash and they would just welcome you with open arms. And for someone like Stevie, who I think always had a problem trying to find his niche and trying to find his group of people that made him feel like he could be something, I think being in Austin at this time was very great for him. And it was actually here where Stevie would start to play at some local Austin bars where he actually would meet some of his childhood heroes like Albert King. And Albert King actually brought Stevie Ray Vaughan up on stage with him. And Stevie was just, again, like a teen at this point, who was obviously unsigned and not with any major band at all, to play with him on stage. And the funny thing is, I heard it being said as well, that like Albert would throw Stevie some made-up guitar riff on the spot, and Stevie would play it mimic back perfectly. So he was really pushing boundaries by this time. And in 1972, he joined a local band called Cracker Jack. But this is so funny. Listen to this. Okay, so this band Cracker Jack, interesting name. But Stevie quit this band when the band wanted them to wear makeup on stage. Now, okay, listen, this was the time I think of like Kiss where wearing makeup on stage was like the thing to do because of Kiss, right? But Stevie Ray Vaughan and makeup, I'm sorry, but I can't picture that. And also, they didn't specify what kind of makeup. I'm thinking to myself, like, a Kiss makeup look or, like, a glam rock makeup look. Like a David Bowie, possibly. But listen, 
I love Stevie Ray Vaughan, but I cannot picture him in makeup, so this was the right choice. He was like, um, I'm gonna swerve this, and I'm not gonna join your band. So he left. So in 1973, he was asked to play for a band called the Nightcrawlers, and they drove to LA to make an album. So this seemed to be a decent band for him. Like, okay, great. We're going to go to LA. We're going to make an album. Great. But the record label rejected their demo tapes, which is like such a shot to the heart to any local artist trying to make it big. And the record label is like, yeah, no, we're not going to hire you. Sorry. They ended up going back to Texas. Stevie would fall into this revolving door of bands in Austin, Texas for the next five years, right? It just became so, so, so agonizingly, torturingly slow for him because, again, he was so proficient at his guitar playing. He was miles and leagues above everyone else, even comparing to his brother, who at the time as well was also, like I said, a guitar aficionado in his own right. But Stevie just got fed up. He's like, why am I in these bands that aren't making any waves and we're not getting signed to labels? We have really not a lot of music to our name. Why am I getting stuck in this revolving door? And it seems like these bands were only hindering his talents. They weren't letting his talent shine through. And at this time, Stevie was, again, he was not a singer like we know him to be now. He was only just a guitar player standing in the back. You know, that's the thing about this. And so Stevie eventually had to realize at some point later on, he will realize this. But at this time, he has to realize that, you know what, I have to just take the center stage and just be me. So while he was living in Austin at this time, the entire time, he lived in this big house with other musician friends and his brother Jimmy, where all the guys, they drank to excess and they did cocaine all the time. So some people think that this is where Stevie started his drug habit and his alcohol problems. It is actually fact that this is where Stevie would drink to excess and do cocaine all the time. Because the thing was, according to the guys in this house that lived together, they thought that, oh, well, to play blues music, you have to live the blues, which meant living in squalor and being drunk and high all the time and being down and out. But they realize, oh, that's really not what you have to do at all. Like, you know, blues just comes from your soul. I mean, sure, I guess maybe it helps to be down and out because then you can play blues music maybe a little bit better. But honestly, it's not a prerequisite. (laughs) So um, but, you know, Stevie was at this point as well becoming disenfranchised with his music career. But then he was also drinking and drugging all the time. So it just became a big kerfuffle. In 1975, Jimmy's group called the Fabulous Thunderbirds, which, my God, that sounds like something out of Greece. The Fabulous Thunderbirds. They were making a name for themselves in Austin. And apparently, they became the biggest band for the best blues bar in town called Anton's. So that's pretty cool. Um, so again, like, it's this whole brotherly competition where it's it's fine, but, like, Jimmy's already making the waves in Austin, whereas Stevie has been, for at this point, for five years, so far behind and not really making a name for himself. So a few years later, in 1977, Stevie was like, right, I'm just done. I've had enough. He finally realizes that he decided to make it on his own and create his own band. He wasn't going to join any of these other bands that weren't doing anything and that weren't making a name for themselves. He wanted to make a name for himself. So the first band that he created was called Stevie Ray Vaughan and the Triple Threat. And guitar legend W.C. Clark was the second guitarist for Triple Threat. And this was the first time that one of his bands was actually making a noticeable difference. And they had a wild effect on the crowd. Stevie was going absolutely bonkers insane on stage. He was like having an absolute ball. Apparently, 
He would play so much that the calluses on his fingers would fall off. But the absolute crazy thing about this, he would apparently super glue his calluses back on his fingers and play some more. That sounds disgusting and that sounds really painful. And I'm just like, ugh, really? But no, that's what he did. I mean, he's absolutely insane, but that's Stevie Ray Vaughan for you. That's just so crazy. His dedication to music in general, unlike anyone else I've ever seen in terms of a guitarist, maybe next to Jimi Hendrix, of course, which Stevie Ray Vaughan also took inspiration from, by the way. But Stevie Ray Vaughan, oh my God. So he was finally happy now in the late 70s making a name for himself, and it was in 1979 that he would end up falling in love with a girl that was nicknamed Lenny, and they would end up spontaneously marrying one day, out of the blue, just, you know, hey, let's get married. Okay, great. So, you know, by the end of the 70s, we're coming into the 80s, things were looking very good for Stevie. Things were um, turning a new leaf for him in terms of at least his career. By this time in 1979, W.C. Clark had ended up leaving the band, and that was fine. But the thing with that was more and more people started to fall to the wayside. Stevie renamed the band at this point then to Double Trouble because obviously there's only now so many people in this band. Uh, so in the middle of their 1979 tour, the singer Luane Barton also quit. Stevie was left with him and the drummer, so that was it. It was just the two of them now, but um, the thing was, this is really nice. The drummer, his name is Chris Layton, he saw that Stevie had a lot of potential and he liked working with Stevie, and he didn't want to just leave Stevie high and dry. So he wanted to stick it out and play with Stevie um, as much as he possibly could, just to see where it could go. So it was just the two of them to a certain point, but in 1980, they added bass player Tommy Shannon, who used to play with Stevie back in the band Cracker Jack. So that was nice. So now Double Trouble was officially Stevie, Chris, and Tommy. Um, so now they decided, well, we have the instruments, but now who's going to sing? And that was like a big point of contention, right? Stevie, again, he was so prolific at his guitar playing that he didn't consider himself a singer by any stretch of the imagination, which is crazy to think about because when you hear him singing, he has such an interesting tonality to his voice. It's so rich and gritty and like southern and and it just screams blues rock it's so perfect it's imperfectly perfect which is what i like um so this was the very first time that stevie would be the front man for a band in his entire music career this was the first time so you know it took him a little bit of time to get used to being up on stage but let me tell you once he was doing his thing he was totally happy and this is also the first time where he began going by his entire full name stevie ray vaughn whereas prior he would only go by Stevie Vaughn. So things were going swimmingly for Double Trouble. In 1982, they played the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland, making them the first unsigned band to perform there. Now guys, get a load of this amazing firecracker bit of information right here. This blew my mind when I first heard this. I was like, what? Because at this Montreux Jazz Festival, it's interesting that they even performed at this jazz festival because it says in the name jazz festival and we all know that Stevie Ray Vaughan is not jazz. <laughs> so it's interesting how they even got on the bill in the first place, but regardless. So they go on stage to a bunch of Swedes in the crowd and they start booing so loud and they're like, what are we doing wrong? What's going on here? But the one person in the crowd that was watching and became mesmerized by what he saw on stage when little Stevie Ray Vaughan would get up there and shred his life away on the guitar. Mr. David Bowie was there. 
Yes, he was there and he saw Stevie Ray Vaughan. Let me remind you guys, they were not signed at all. They had not put any music out officially. They were still, in a very large respect, an unknown band. So David Bowie is there and he's like, this guy Stevie Ray Vaughan can absolutely play. And he says this. I saw him working at a jazz concert in Europe and he was like second on the bill. This little kid from Austin, Texas came out and just played some of the most devastating rhythm and blues I've heard in years. David Bowie was like, how do I get this guy in my band? How do I bring this kid from Austin, Texas over to me? And I don't think I need to remind you guys at this point in time, David Bowie is the hottest thing since sliced bread. So he is on it. Bowie asked Stevie Ray if he could play guitar on his latest album, which would be called Let's Dance. But he had nothing but nice things to say about David Bowie. He was an absolute professional and a very nice guy. Um, so Stevie's contribution to the album helped make it one of Bowie's best in his entire career. So Stevie played guitar on the album, and he also played guitar on the biggest hit called Let's Dance. They had already recorded the album Let's Dance, and they already had that in the works, right? David Bowie was like, I need you to play in my touring band, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Will you play in my touring band for me, please? But this was the interesting thing, right? Stevie could have absolutely went on tour with David Bowie. Who knows what kind of career he would have had if he had went with Bowie and the people he would have met and the life he would have lived. Who knows? But Stevie knew that his home was with Double Trouble, was with his friends, Chris and Tommy. And he wasn't just going to leave them alone to fend for themselves and drop them because David Bowie himself wanted Stevie to be in his touring band. And I think that's really nice. You know, Stevie was like, Mr. David Bowie, I love you so much, but I already have a band that's waiting for me back in Austin, Texas, and I can't leave them high and dry. So thank you, but no thank you. When um, the Let's Dance video, the music video for that came out, um, Stevie was already gone at that point. So you see in the video David Bowie playing the guitar, just to let you know, okay, again, that was not David Bowie, that was Stevie Ray Vaughan, just, just to let you guys know there. So Stevie Ray Vaughan said goodbye, David Bowie, hello, Austin, Texas. And he went back to Double Trouble. And he's like, right, guys, we got to make a record, okay? So in December 1982, Double Trouble went to LA to record their debut album called Texas Flood. And they were officially signed to Epic Records. So David Bowie, I think, became like a touchstone for them, which is awesome. So now they're finally making money moves. And they recorded the record in only two days. I think that's absolute insanity. They only did that in two days. But the album, their debut, Texas Flood, was released on June 13th, 1983, and it sold over half a million copies and was praised highly by music critics and by fans. They somewhat became an overnight success. So again, they had small town cred in Austin, Texas, and I guess in Texas itself. And then they go over to the Montreux Jazz Festival. David Bowie plucks them from obscurity. He puts Stevie Ray in his album. They go back to Austin and then they record an album and they become an overnight success. As their popularity grew, Stevie always would pay tribute to the bluesmen that paved the way for him and inspired him all those years ago. So again, like Albert King was one of his greatest inspirations. So he would play with them all the time. He would thank them all the time. Like he was just very grateful. By 1984, Double Trouble became one of the bands to be nominated for Grammys. But the thing about this, they were nominated for four Grammys. My God, they were just making the moves. Their second album called Couldn't Stand the Weather was then released later and it sold over a million copies. So listen, 
The 80s was like the golden era for Double Trouble and Stevie Ray. They were just doing all of the things, and he deserved all of the accolades. It was by this time that Stevie went bold, and he paid homage to one of his major music inspirations, Jimi Hendrix himself. So there was this famous show that Stevie Ray and the Double Trouble did at the Carnegie Hall on October 4th, 1984, where Stevie played Voodoo Child to a crowd of adoring fans. And this went over so well. People were so happy that this happened. Like almost like their two worlds were colliding into one. It, it just became a really, really major gig for them. But to contrast that, while he was very successful in his music career and Double Trouble was doing so well in the charts, everything was going seemingly very well, behind the scenes, behind the curtain, when you pull the curtain back, Stevie was also struggling very, very hardcore with his drinking and with his drugging. And that was a major problem. And also his marriage was on the rocks too. If you can imagine, almost like a Johnny Cash kind of thing where he went on the road so much that his wife was like, what the hell are you doing? And also he was on drugs as well, Johnny Cash, and his wife was like, what are you doing? So it became this thing where Stevie would drink and drug to excess more than any of the other guys that would partake as well. That was the thing. Stevie would go excess where he got this kind of ethos from his father where if he's like, well, if one's good, then 15 is better that kind of thing. And his brother Jimmy would mimic the same thing because his brother Jimmy also had a major, really bad addiction as well to alcohol. It just wasn't looking good in this in this instance. Um, in Stevie's performing contract, he actually required a fifth of scotch in his dressing room at each gig every single time. And his cocaine habit went to as high as taking four grams of coke a day. To cure the hangovers that he would have, he would do almost like a hair of the dog kind of situation, but he would dissolve Coke into a glass of whiskey and he would drink that in like a mug, like a coffee mug. Obviously, this would absolutely wreck your insides. Two ways from Sunday. I mean, this would shred you so badly. Your stomach lining must have been like crying out for help. It became a dire situation later on, but this was just the absolute madness that he was embarking on almost every day. So that's just to juxtapose the success of his fame with the battles of his personal life. But for their third album, Soul to Soul, they brought on a fourth member who was the keyboard player called Reese Winans. So now they were a four-piece. Stevie had excess time and money now to make this album, whereas their previous works of art in terms of albums were done very quickly the turnaround for that was a couple of days, but this album, Soul to Soul, it was an absolute drag, and this took weeks to record. So Stevie just lacked the inspiration, I think, comparatively to his other work. And also, he was very, very heavily into his drug addiction. There were mounds of cocaine sitting on the organ in the recording studio for this album, where, you know, again, like everyone would partake, but the problem was Stevie would overdo it. And people were like, wow, this guy has a massive problem. This is not good. And unfortunately, their album Sold a Soul, which released in September 30th in 1985, it didn't do well with every, with anybody, actually. It was met with a lukewarm reception from people. Um, there was a critic who was a writer for Rolling Stone at the time who wrote, there's some left in their blues rock pastiche. It's also possible that they've run out of gas. 
So people were saying, like, I think they're running out of speed now. They're, like, slowly running on fumes. They're not doing so well. And to make matters worse, it seemed now that things were just compounding and collapsing on top of Stevie. Stevie was asked in April of 1985 to play the Star Spangled Banner to, I believe it was a football, a football game that was going on. So he did, like, a Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner kind of moment, but whereas Jimi Hendrix played it to a adoring crowd of people at Woodstock, and he absolutely killed it. Stevie Ray was like over here haphazardly, ruggedly trying to pluck the guitar strings and make any kind of sound. And apparently the crowd booed him. And Stevie was like, well, you can't win them all. But see, that's the unfortunate thing. Stevie Ray should have kicked that out of the park. It's just, it's just so unfortunate that this had to happen to him. His addiction was taking over his life. And unfortunately, his marriage suffered because of this. They were arguing all the time. Again, Stevie was away, touring all the time. His drug habit became such a massive epidemic. It just unfortunately turned to a point where one day Stevie came back home and he noticed the house was padlocked and his wife, Lenny, was gone. She had enough of his shit and he was like, well, I guess our seven years of marriage was over. So now what is he to do? You know, now he's upset that his wife left him. He has nobody his album didn't go so well. The Star Spangled Banner incident went horribly. He thinks that maybe this is the end. He would make jokes in the press and in interviews at this time that he was still married to his first wife, whom he would say was his guitar. I don't know, on one hand, that's kind of like, oh, that's nice, I guess. Like, oh, he loves his guitar so much. But also it's like, oh, that's a little sad. By mid-1986, Double Trouble was touring the world nonstop. And Stevie had ample amount of time because he didn't have a wife to get home to, right? And he had no children as well, so he could theoretically be out all night and have no problem being on benders, so doesn't matter. Uh, but, you know, eventually they would start to run out of fuel, and sometimes they would actually play in Jimmy's band. Um, and so Jimmy's band and Double Trouble would play on the same bill and they would play together, which is nice, but the problem was, again, both brothers had their problems, so they were kind of enabling each other. And to make matters even worse, on August the 27th, 1986, their father died after battling with a long illness. And the absolute tragic thing about this, the brothers fly back home to Texas to be with their mother and to stay, obviously, for the funeral, right? As you do. But the problem was, once the funeral was over, the boys headed back on a plane to go on tour. So they didn't even stay that long. They also didn't know their mother that well at this point because they both left home at around their teen years. They were out on tour all the time. They weren't really in contact with their family. It became a really awkward situation, right? But in September of 1986, Stevie went overboard. This was a turning point in his life where he was one day out walking down the street with his friends and he just started throwing up blood out of nowhere. Absolutely trashed. His friend was like, Stevie, you have to stop. He said that he knew he didn't need a drink, but he wanted a drink which is every alcoholic's thought process, right? And you don't want it, really. You're just trying to mask your pain, right? So the thing that made Stevie almost die at this time in his life was the concoction of the Coke dissolved in the whiskey. They ended up having to take Stevie to a hospital in London because the tours at that time were canceled because Stevie was just, he was in really bad condition. And the doctors that were treating him at this hospital told him that that concoction was tearing your stomach apart and that he was a month away from death. He lived another four years after this point, um, which is nice, but he could have easily died in 1986. 
So that became a massive turning point for him. He spent two months in treatment centers and rehab, and he really took on the serious role of his sobriety. And he started to look at life with a fresh perspective because, you know, he had done a lot in his life that was damaging to his body. And I think at that point, the damage had already been done, but it was helping that he started to look at life in a much healthier way and seriously take control of his life with his sobriety, which is nice. And what also would help him was his new girlfriend that was there with him. He would meet this new girl in New Zealand and she flew to London to be by his side when he had to go to all these treatment centers. Um, so she was a massive help for him as well, which was nice. Stevie was like, right, I met a new girl. I'm sober. I'm done. So he officially filed for a divorce from his first wife, Lenny, and he moved back to Dallas, Texas with this incredibly fresh perspective, um, which is nice that he had this because he was genuinely serious about this. You know, oftentimes while he was on the road, he would go back home and attend AA meetings with recovering addicts to help them and share his story with people. And that meant a lot to him. And he also tried to forge a stronger relationship with his mother, whom he said he didn't really know that well at that point. So he tried his best to make solid connections with his friends and family and help people in any way that he could because of the things that he experienced in his life, which means so much. He, he was just such a nice man, you know. Um, so in early 1987, after some time of him getting clean, Double Trouble went back on tour. So a year later, they went back in the recording studio to try to make another record. They were aware that their previous attempt was not that great. And Stevie, again, was in six feet under at that point, theoretically, right? So they were like, we need a fresh new outlook and we need something different. So their album that they created was called In Step and it would be released in 1989. The song that I think that's very synonymous with Stevie Ray Vaughan called Tightrope. This is where he would write this song. Um, and Stevie wrote this after his battles with drug and alcohol addiction. I like that song even more now that I know that meaning behind the song, that he wrote this clean and he was reflecting on his past. That was nice. And obviously In Step was extremely well received by everybody. Um, and what was actually nice was in 1989, Jimmy and Stevie decided to make a record together for the first time in their entire career musically. They had never officially recorded an album together or songs together. Of course, they would play together in gigs, but they never went to the studio to do any kind of serious thing here. Jimmy also got clean as well, which was nice. So the two brothers were coming back together. They were both sober. They were both clean. They were both healthy. And they recorded one album together called Family Style. I think their moniker was the Vaughn Brothers, something like that. Their album was called Family Style, and it wasn't released until Stevie's death a month later. And that just makes this whole thing so sad was he lived for an extra four years clean and sober, which is nice, but he never got to reap the full benefits of his sobriety for any longer point in time and live a new life for any longer duration because he was to be taken out by an accident. And that's really tragic. Um, so let's just get into the details of his death. So Double Trouble was on tour and this was August the 26th, 1990. So Double Trouble, they took a helicopter outside of Chicago where they flew to Wisconsin's Alpine Valley, which was like an open arena venue. And they were on tour with some of the greatest of the greats. 
like Eric Clapton was there, and also Jimmy's band was there as well. So it was just a really, really fun time. And they performed to a crowd of sixty thousand adoring blues fans and Stevie Ray fans. I mean, can you imagine being there, Eric Clapton and Stevie Ray on the same bill? That is insane. So on this day, interestingly enough, Stevie told his bandmates and crew members that he had a horrible nightmare recently. In which he was at his own funeral and he saw thousands of mourners. He said that he felt terrified yet almost peaceful. So that's extremely eerie that he had this what he called a nightmare where he was at his own funeral. So I mean, believe what you want to believe if you're spiritual or religious or not. But I think he absolutely saw his future, and unfortunately, it was knocking right at his doorstep. So the following day, August the twenty seventh, they had another show at this Alpine Valley. The show was over. Stevie said goodbye to his brother and his band and Eric Clapton and his people. He went to board a helicopter, and there was only one seat available. And Stevie was adamant that he get on this plane because he had to be back in Chicago. For some reason, that was imperative that he go back right away.、Um, so he went on this helicopter. And the pilot for this helicopter, apparently from the research that I've done, was a very good pilot. Unfortunately, I think the weather conditions at this time, I think, was the reason why this plane—I don't know why I said plane—why <laughs> this helicopter ended up crashing, and that's what ended up happening. They didn't even really take off or fly that far until they crashed, and、um, that's where everyone on board died. I think instantly, and、uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan was to pass away. August the twenty seventh, nineteen ninety, and the most insane part about this: August the twenty seventh was the same day that his father died, but four years ago. I think that's not a coincidence. That absolutely was something serendipitous. I believe, anyway. Believe what you want to believe, but that's what I think. So, yeah, that as a whole is the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, he led an absolutely wild life. He really did. I consider him one of the greatest guitar players of all time, next to Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton. You have some of the greatest of the greats out there, but Stevie Ray—he's fantastic. He wasn't that old when he passed away. Couldn't have been more than early 40s anyway, but he was very young, you know, when this happened. He didn't have any children that would carry on his legacy or anything like that.、Um, so. Yeah, very um, very tragic life, you know, that he led. His drug addictions, his up and downs with fame in the early stages there. But I mean, I think, I think David Bowie picking you out from one gig and starting the path for you is so monumental to him. But also, it goes to show how incredibly talented he was. Do you think David Bowie would just pick any Joe Schmo on stage and say, "I want that guy to play on my next record"? No, of course he wouldn't. Stevie Ray Vaughan is one of the best of the best, and if for some reason you haven't listened to his music, please, please educate yourself and listen. Watch him play. There's so many clips of him on YouTube. Listen to some of his amazing songs. I mean, Life by the Drop,、um, Look a Little Sister. You have Pride and Joy. You have Tightrope. You have all the other songs he did. I mean, he is fantastic. Insanely talented, and it's unfortunate that he had to pass in such a tragic way. You know, it would have been interesting to see a Stevie Ray Vaughan in the '90s. You know, especially when grunge would have been coming up. That would have been really, really interesting. Because the thing about Stevie Ray Vaughan that I didn't hit on as well that I just thought about now. 
Stevie Ray was doing blues when at the time in the 80s, the popular thing was new wave and like synth, right? But Stevie Ray was so different. He was doing blues. He was a keen believer in his blues music and that's what he wanted to do. He didn't want to conform and be like any other recording artist out there. He wanted to be himself. And that's the important distinction about Stevie Ray versus anyone else. He was steadfast in his own beliefs and what he wanted to do. Sure, he lived a very chaotic life. He had a chaotic childhood. He had a bit of an erratic couple of years in the 80s with his addiction. He made some amazing music that still withstands the test of time, and I'm very grateful that I got to grow up with his music, and I still love him to this day. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.